This is Jim Carr, author of The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Hrefs. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Hrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google, search results, and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. Now, a subscription to Hrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars per month, but Hrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. For details, go to hrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. I'll have more details in a bit. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Jim Carr to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business, published by Career Press. Jim Carr, PhD, is a keynote speaker, consultant, coach, and former corporate marketer. He guides business professionals, teams, and entire organizations to stand out through better messaging, which in turn produces better customer relationships, stronger brands, and more growth opportunities. As a consultant and coach, Jim serves clients internationally, including associations, small businesses, high-growth tech firms, and a dozen members of the Fortune 500. And interesting facts. In high school, growing up in Swainsboro, Georgia, he was a country music DJ, and later in life, he completed the New York City Marathon. Jim, congratulations on the science of customer connections, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, Douglas, thank you very much, and congratulations on your research. I, it, it's it's hard to find Swainsboro, Georgia on a map, but I am proud of my hometown. Well, you know, I, I there's a lot about you in the book, but it's only to illustrate a larger point or tell a, uh, an interesting uh, anecdote, and I, I had a lot of fun. I, I noticed that also in the book, towards the end, your dad was a general. He was. He uh, had served active duty in the Army for a few years and then had a long career in the Georgia National Guard. And so he uh, he retired uh, as a brigadier general, and uh, we used to refer to him 
around the house uh, as the general, especially uh-huh. when he got into that mode. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, um, we referred to my dad that way sometimes, but never when he was could hear it, because my dad <laughs> was a general also. And normally, if you look at me and my brothers, you know, general's kids usually you know, they're, they're kind of messed up. They, they don't all turn out well. But I'm glad to see that you did. So, you know, props to you. And to you, Douglas. We are the <laughs> rare exceptions here on the podcast. That's right. I just remember that for years when I was little, I really kind of had to behave because I was the general's son. <laughs> it's like being the mayor's son, I think. Yes, or the minister's son. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, that's so true. Yes. Uh, my heart goes out to all those preacher's kids that I think they probably <laughs> had it more difficult than, than you or I did. But you are a resident of Arkansas, and on page 39 of your book, you mentioned that you have spent time with Bill Clinton. So the question is, did you party with him? I can't say that I really party with him. Uh, the point I made in the Just book... Just whatever you say, be really careful, Tim. <laughs> I don't know if the Secret Service uh, is, is listening <laughs> right. to all this. But um, Arkansas is an interesting place. I obviously didn't grow up here, but I've been here for a while. And it's a state with a, fewer, a little bit more than 3 million people in a pretty big land area. Mm-hmm. People tend to know one another. And yeah. there have been some big names, and you think the corporate world of the Walmarts and Stevens and Dillards and those sorts of people, but certainly on the political front. And I uh, oftentimes, Douglas, when I'm traveling, I'm speaking or in, in different places, either in the US or overseas, what people tend to know about Arkansas is Walmart or Clinton's, and maybe Mike Huckabee. Uh-huh. And uh, um, I, I draw from having spent a little time in person with both of the Clintons, former president and Hillary Clinton, as well as Mike Huckabee, Mm -hmm. who are on very different ends of the political spectrum, of course. But I found that Bill Clinton and Mike Huckabee are both wonderful communicators. They're excellently, they have amazing memories, um, an amazing ability to focus on the other person in the moment, make them feel very important. And, and I've heard to, that Bill Clinton, yeah. I think you may have mentioned that he, he, when he's talking to somebody, he's completely focused on them and it makes them feel like they're the only person in the room. Absolutely. Which makes him and uh, Governor Huckabee uh, very rare exceptions in the political world who typically, I find if you're ever at a, a fundraiser or a public event, something like that, and, and you meet that person that political leader or that politician politician running for office you kind of feel most of the time as if they're going to shake your hand, make eye contact, and let's look over your shoulder, Jim, mm-hmm. and see who is a bigger potential donor that I can ditch <laughs> right. you for and go to the next person. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I don't uh, shake a lot of hands of a lot of uh, politicians. So as a result, I don't need a whole lot of hand sanitizer. Now, I should also <laughs> say that uh, you are the host of the Manage Your Message podcast, which is a great podcast, and you've interviewed some guests who've been also on the Marketing Book podcast, and it's really, really consistently good, except for that knucklehead on episode 18. You know, I don't know what, I, maybe it was just a bad week for you, but... Yeah, um, I think it was uh, uh, what, Doug, uh, Douglas Burdett, was that the... Oh, oh yes, that's some right. Some guy who... Who reads books? What a loser. Anyway, so yeah, but that was great fun. And I can't believe what a great editor you are because you actually really did make me sound great. So I would urge the listener of the Marketing Book Podcast, if Jim's book, 
looks like it's right up your alley, and I think it probably is, or I wouldn't have invited him on. Check out his podcast as well, but please don't stop listening to mine. So I have to say one thing on a personal note, and, and then it'll be enough about me, okay? But some of the concepts in your book, now I know this sounds absolutely crazy. For months, I've been trying to sell one of my motorcycles because I bought a bigger one, and this is the one that I, I wasn't riding anymore. I read something in your book, got some ideas. I went back and changed the copy on the motorcycle ad, which was on Cycle Trader and Facebook and Craigslist and all this other stuff. I changed that copy on Thursday. On Saturday, a buyer showed up with a cashier's check. Coincidence? I don't know. I think not. (laughs) I think not. So for everyone listening to the podcast, if you're trying to sell something or if you want a better deal, you can cut through you know, the fluffy language and know what the value should be far more value than the 1695 that you'll peel off from my book. That's right. I mean, clearly I sold this uh, bike at a, at a good price, but I cut out a bunch of things and I, I read that and I thought, well, let me try that. And sure enough, something happened because in the next uh, two, three days, I heard from five people that wanted to come by and look at it. So I don't know, maybe it was just that uh, Jim Carr good luck. So at any rate, thank you. You're quite welcome. I'm, I'm glad that it was that valuable for you right away. Yeah. It's, I guess it's nice for an author to hear about immediate value that uh, <laughs> their, their books uh, can lend. So this book's forward was by none other than Dory Clark, one of my favorite authors. And she's a member of the very exclusive club called the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club. So Jim, just two more books and uh, you, know, you could start earning discounts at restaurants that are... <clears throat> offering discounts. But she wrote, uh, she was an early supporter of the podcast, and I just absolutely love her books. Her books are a trilogy. So when I saw that she wrote the foreword to this, I, I knew that it was, it was going to be terrific. So let me just uh, read from one excerpt at the beginning, and then we can get into it. What is the best way to talk about your business? I've been working on the answer to that question for years, mostly for the benefit of clients. I've also tried to figure it out for my own business, especially as the nature of my work has changed dramatically a few times over those years. Whatever the nature of your business, the conversation matters. It's probably the simplest, most direct way to stand out in our increasingly noisy world. It also represents the fastest way to grow. The social media and online worlds get most of the attention, but the vast majority of word of mouth happens offline. That is where the growth opportunities are hanging out, just waiting. Too often we miss out. People know us in our organization, but they don't fully understand what we do or whom we serve. Customers and friends would recommend us, but aren't sure what to say. The real value we offer is trapped inside industry lingo, technical specifications, and self-focused language. So, Jim, messaging. Explain what that means. Uh, I think it could mean many different things to different listeners. But explain what it is when you talk about business messaging, and how that can be such an advantage. You bet. And messaging is a a big concept. And so while I'm not a fan of trying to describe something according to what it is not, maybe that's a good place to start. Uh, It is not, in, in my thinking, the message around your business isn't necessarily your slogan or a tagline. It's in my opinion, certainly not your mission statement or your vision statement. We can talk about that as well. It's more of in everyday conversations, which may be out of 
your sales team or it could be out of your account team or people who are delivering or servicing your product. It can be your current customers or clients talking to their friends about you or employees who might not be so-called customer facing. They may be in the, uh, the back office and yet they're very important conversations that they have with their friends. And so I think of the organic conversations that happen around your business on an everyday basis when you're not there. And what is it that people are saying in those human conversations? And are you part of those conversations when you could be? So I think of it as less contrived or snappy or uh, great you know, web content. We can talk about that as well, but it certainly should be an everyday conversation consistent with your message uh, in other in other platforms and other media. But I think of just the the everyday stuff, the hallway conversation, the things that happens at a customer's home when you're delivering product, uh, the conversations that people have in the community at a ball game or in their uh, their neighborhoods. Sure. Well, let's go a little further there. What are some of the false and damaging assumptions? about messaging and, and why do companies and people get so uptight about it? Well, there are a number of gaps and problems that are inherent in all of this, Douglas, and some of them get to our own worries about ourselves and the people around us. I'll mention, and I, I don't believe I've addressed this uh, specifically in the book, but I have found in my in the work that I do now, and I've worked with... So what you're saying is this is a marketing book podcast extra? Bonus content. <laughs> Absolutely free of charge. And to the listener, we say, you're welcome. Please go ahead. <laughs> uh, I, work, I do a lot of work now with, and it could be executive subject matter experts, a lot of working uh, professional sellers. And I know, Douglas, you have been learning a lot about marketing from sales and vice versa here uh, on the podcast recently. And I'm, I'm there oftentimes working with them very specifically about what they ask and say and show in their customer conversations. And I've had this sense, and it is reinforced almost every time, that those sellers who are typically dealing in more complex kind of solutions, valuable sorts of things, that they have a good deal of confidence in the value of what they have to offer, but less confidence in how to talk about it or how they individually and in how the organization itself is kind of marketing what their marketing message uh, is out there. Well, and I would I, say a lot of them take refuge in product knowledge or talking about their own company. Exactly. And that's a comfort level issue that also gets into one of the, I would say, problems or the things that hold individuals and companies back. We tend to find comfort in the things that we know best and where we are unlikely to be held out uh, for something that we don't know or get told no. And so we know the deals that we worked on. We know about our organization. We know about the product. Uh, we might not know as much about our customer and being able to ask intelligent questions and tell good stories and to be able to sometimes shut up and listen. So we tend to fall into that comfort zone of, as, I, as you were reading that passage in the book before, of talking about technical specs, talking about our company and its history or its good intentions or those sorts of things that we know. And, and that isn't going to really connect with the marketplace in a way that's conversational, the kind of things that people believe, it's bite-sized, it's memorable, and that they actually like to share. So to that part of confidence, and this really uh, pointed it out to me, I was uh, speaking 
with uh, Tim Pollard uh, with a he's an author and uh, has a company called Oradium, and they had done some survey research with professional sellers. And on a one to ten scale, Douglas, of confidence, where one meaning not at all confident, ten would be very highly confident. And they asked these sellers, how confident are you in the value of what you provide? The average was 8.1 on that 10-point scale. They asked the same sellers on the same scale, how confident are you in the messaging, what's being said about it? The answer was 3.9, so less than four on that same scale. So there's a big chasm, and people tend to recognize that problem, or they, they might have a sense of Oh, you know, I just we we somehow have to crack this code. There has to be some sort of magic bullet that we can come up with here. And so there is a, a sense that the way that we do it individually and across teams and organizations isn't right. And as you also mentioned, Douglas, there's tremendous opportunity here. If you look at the number of conversations that happen offline versus online. Oh, it's it's and, overwhelming. And I've seen that in a couple other books. Everyone thinks it's online and digital, but most word of mouth, I think it was in Jay Bear's book and also in Ted Wright's book, uh, both about word of mouth marketing. <laughs> some like 90% or 85% of all word of mouth is offline, something like that. Uh, that's correct. And what I've seen, and I've, I've certainly follow uh, Jay Bear's, uh, the work that Fizz does. Um, this was from a book called Contagious um, by Jonah Berger. Oh, yeah. And, and quoted the same sort of thing. More than 90% of word of mouth happens offline. And that certainly doesn't mean in this day and age you don't pay attention to the digital online piece. But if you think about this buffet of growth opportunities, let's go to where the food is. Let's go to right, where most right. of the opportunities are. But the Jim, let me let me ask though, then how does a company even get their arms around trying to uh, seed this message throughout their organization? I don't use the I don't want to use the word control, but right. you said it's not a slogan, it's not the, something, but how to talk a little bit about how a company can start to infuse their organization with better messaging. I think the first step Douglas is to is to recognize that this is a manageable business problem. There's a tremendous opportunity and there's probably a status quo that's not real good. But the great news is you don't have to be perfect. If you can just be consistently pretty good, then you'll have a tremendous advantage. The way that I've looked at it, and my background is, uh, you might say it's a hodgepodge. You might say, as I do, that everything made sense at the time. I think uh, your career could... is very typical of a modern career. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's doing something different from what they studied and they're doing something different from what they did 10, 15 years ago for, for the most part. I, I count me amongst them too. So, and, and people listen to this podcast. This is like a support group. <laughs> it's a lot of marketing and salespeople and they're having to learn how to do all these different kinds of things. And they're trying to explain to their organizations what's going on. So yes, you're amongst friends. I'm sorry. I interrupted. It's all Okay. So just briefly from my background, which includes time uh, as a university professor, as a consumer and audience researcher, it includes time as a private company CMO, chief marketing officer, um, competing in a relatively small company against some very, very large, well-known competition. And then today in my work uh, as a consultant and speaker and coach. And so it's given me, and, and Douglas, I think this is where this comes in of how to approach this to kind of get one's arms around the issue is I've had a chance to, to look at messaging, test that, 
look at um, the concepts around what is actually persuasive and clear and what is not, mm -hmm. to look at how people take that and either share or don't share that message in their jobs and in their everyday lives. And also the complexities, the practical realities of how you do that for not only yourself, but across a complex organization. These days, people work in uh, dispersed ways in different schedules and in different geographies, cultures. So it is a it is a big issue, but I come to see it as a bit of a three-legged stool. So I would encourage you to think of, in a very simple, practical way, this idea of, of managing your everyday business message has three components to it. So the first is the message itself. And that's where a lot of people start. They think we just have to be a little bit snappier and a, a little bit more clear. And even that message, it is the words that you say, how to craft and share a story. How do you incorporate visuals? How do you, in a simple way, incorporate data and numbers if you have a technical product? So, Right. Let me just interrupt. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about Ahrefs and a really sweet offer they have. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Ahrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google search results and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. A few of my favorite tools include the site audit. This crawls your entire website and gives a comprehensive report on any issues that may be hurting your SEO performance. And you're going to be surprised and maybe a little bit embarrassed at what the site audit will find. If you're a marketer responsible for your website, you'll want to run this report before your boss does. And if you're an agency responsible for your client's website, you better run this report before your clients do. Another one is Site Explorer. This is where you can research any website, but especially your competitors. One popular way to use this is to figure out your competitors' marketing strategies by studying the keywords they rank for in search results and finding out the pages that bring them the most traffic from search. You can research anything from how fast their search traffic is growing to which websites are linking to them to the pages on their website with the most backlinks. Another one is Keyword Explorer. This is great to have before you create even more content for your site. This tool helps you discover thousands of great keyword ideas and gauge how difficult it is to rank for them and then calculate their traffic potential. You can also confirm what your potential customers are searching for online to help make sure that you're including the right keywords and content on your site. Now, a monthly subscription to Ahrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars, but Ahrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. So, even if you don't end up subscribing, the reports that you can run are a phenomenal value. Seriously. Otherwise, if you've got money coming out the wazoo, hire an SEO firm, give them a king's ransom, but don't be upset when you find out they're using Ahrefs to run the same reports that you can run. Also, just a bit of medical advice. If you've got money coming out the wazoo, you should probably get that checked. Now, are there other all-in-one SEO tools? Sure, there are, and they're good. But in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, there's a link to an article about the nine most important features that Ahrefs has that no other SEO tool does. 
Check that out. To get the seven-day trial for just $7, visit hrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And now, back to the show. Later in the book, Jim explains he really does not like the term elevator pitch. And uh, there's like an equation here. Just to give people a a little sample, uh, you have this equation, which is I help blank to blank, which benefits them by blank. So right off the bat, I could see how an organization could say, stop talking about yourself so much. Maybe talk about the problems you solve. we solve for our customers. That's exactly right, Douglas. And it gets to one of the fundamental parts of a message, which is that we tend to talk about ourselves too much. And I'm not immune to any of these sorts of things. And I've certain, sometimes uh, had to learn the hard way uh, myself. If you look at, at studies of everyday conversations, not necessarily business conversations, just people talking uh, one-to-one, face-to-face, we tend to talk about ourselves about 60% of the time. And and by the way, on the whole social and online world, when we don't have that audience of that other person in front of us, it's about 80% of the time. So, uh, And that is also a comfort uh, sort of issue. And so one of the things that you can do first on your message is start to untangle all the self-referent and uh, irrelevant components mm-hmm. about your business as much as you might love them and as much as you might believe that they're true, they're just not going to be that compelling. That's a big part of it. Let's go to the other two parts. Well, the second part, and there's not a particular order, but um, oftentimes people do start with the message. The second part is the messengers. So I want you to think about you certainly as the number one messenger for what you do and in your team or your business, but also think about all the other people that do carry the message or maybe that you wish would carry that message and do so in a consistent and positive sort of way. One of the things, Douglas, that gets in the way here, and it's an erroneous assumption, one that I've heard for a long time at most of business, we've operated under this assumption for a couple of generations now, is that extroverts are the most persuasive people. And it's kind of been self-reinforcing over time. So we think, oh, it makes a lot of sense. We need salespeople who are uh, motivated and positive and bulletproof, and they may be told no 50 times, but they're going to make that 51st call. Mm-hmm. And they are crying on the inside. <laughs> and they're crying on the inside. They get hired at higher rates, and we uh, companies do these personality assessments, and then uh, eventually the managers are they're extroverts, and they're looking for more extroverts, and the, the system just kind of feeds on itself. But there was a very interesting study Adam Grant did maybe seven or eight years ago, and he actually tested this with working salespeople and had given them uh, an introversion-extroversion assessment. And then was able to look at their actual performance in terms of how much time they spent on the job and control some other factors, whether they offered discounts or how much experience they had and those sorts of things. And got a very nice, clear look at, by personality type on the introversion to extroversion scale, who was most effective. And two things that really stood out and surprised me a bit and surprised a lot of other people as well. The first result was that the extroverts were no better than the introverts. It was statistically insignificant. The the other part that was, I think, fundamentally important is that neither the introverts nor the extroverts were as effective as the people in the middle. And those uh, have the term now, because if you do research, you have to come up with a very researchy kind of term for it. And uh, they're called ambiverts, Mm -hmm. like 
someone who's ambidextrous. I call them the nimble majority because they're people who naturally have good conversation patterns and it also describes most of the population. Yeah. You know, most of us swing both ways. I'm kidding. Maybe that's going to be quoted out of context, but <laughs> no, it's very true. And I remember seeing um, Daniel Pink uh, give a keynote about that after his book about to sell as human, which uh, you mentioned in the book. And he talks about how there's there's the ambiverts, but the messengers could also be your your vendors. It could be your referral partners. It, towards the end of the book, you talk about how important it is to have everybody in the organization understand the answer to the question is, what do you do? Exactly. And how, even if it's, they're not doing it themselves, about what it is that say, you know, what is it that artillery is really good at? I mean, whom do they serve? What do they offer? Mm-hmm. What's it like to work with them? So just having that sort of a sense. And uh, Douglas, I'll even add to that list, your current customers can be great messengers for Absolutely. you. Channel partners. Yeah. You mentioned vendors and suppliers, other friends in the community, and you think about who might be good referral partners for you. Um, Very I true. I, I got uh, I referred somebody. It made absolutely no sense, and I couldn't be upset at my friend, but I was just thinking, boy, you know, we really do have a lot of work to help folks understand what it is we do. So it's very true for a big company and a, and a small one. So the, let's move on. So the message, the messengers, and what's the third stool? The third leg of the stool is management or management habits. So think about the pace of change inside even a smaller organization, much less a larger one. You know, people tend to be cycling in and out of the organization pretty fast. Uh, your portfolio of products and services is probably changing faster than it ever has. Mm-hmm. What happens when people come into the organization and they, they learn about you, learn what your story really is, whom you serve, where you make money, how you keep score? And then oftentimes as people move up, the, you know, they oftentimes in very short order these days, Douglas, and they become a manager. They have direct reports and people are looking to them like, well, what do, what's important here? What do we say? How do I answer a certain sort of question? And so how do you not only keep the message fresh, but how do you on a regular basis make sure that your messengers, the ones who are most important to you, are equipped with the knowledge and the skill and the confidence that they need. Okay, now I'm going to let the listener in on a little secret here, because this is a new book, and most people probably haven't read it yet. The book is in three parts. The message, the messengers, and management habits. (laughs) So (laughs) he just walked us through the whole book, but there's still some more things I want to talk to you about, as well as some jokes that I've written. The point is that you can't control the message and the messaging, but there's a lot that companies can be doing to try and manage it. And that's why a whole section is on what the company's management can be doing to help facilitate that. So a couple other questions that just I thought were very interesting. This is a book about messaging. Why in the book do you talk about crickets, cowboys, and commodities? Thank you for the setup, Douglas. So this is, as we just had our conversation about what is it that tends to make some teams and some organizations consistently good at this, and they are able to actually grow through their everyday conversations. And they have a good sense. They have a a message that's clear and shareable and relevant, and they have incorporated on purpose a lot of messengers to help share that, and they they have some good management habits. So they've, they've thought about those three legs of the stool. And it would be a very logical and expected question might have from your listeners or someone who's picking up the book to say, okay, Sure, that makes sense conceptually. Fine. Where would I start? And so um, 
crickets, cowboys, commodities. That was uh, my mildly clever, I hope, way of alliterative, uh, yeah, alliterative way of trying to give you a sense of if you're looking at yourself and you're looking at your team, your organization is where might the weak leg of that three-legged stool be? So if you have a you have a three-legged stool and one's shorter or weaker than the other two, you're going to fall predictably in the direction of the weakness. And so uh, let's say uh, commodity is one. And that's just the sense that if you look at even your website versus other people in your industry, do you sound the same? Are you quoting things from your mission statement? And by the way, the research on mission statements and vision statements is they all use pretty much the same words and they all sound pretty much alike. Oh, and so let, me, let me quote from the book, just you know, for the listener. Your mission statement is probably a poor substitute for a real marketplace message. Carve that in stone, folks. Please, Jim, go ahead. <laughs> and not that your mission statement is necessarily bad. And in big organizations, they probably spent 18 months at it and had various committees and everyone massaged it to death. But what happens is it becomes undifferentiated and everyone talks about their service levels and their commitment to customers and community and the environment and blah, 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 blah. But right. it doesn't make you stand out in any way. And frankly, I found, Douglas, maybe you have as well, that if you ask people inside an organization to quote their mission statement, most of them can't do it. Oh, I know of some companies where they will, if you can say the mission statement, the uh, boss will give you whatever money they have in their wallet. <laughs> it's, it's that I know of a retailer that once did this, where he would give the uh, employees whatever money he had in his pocket. You know, it wouldn't be a lot of money, but he would give, and, and, and actually it caught on because it was a good one. But most of the time, these mission statements, I mean, I, I think they're well-intentioned, and I think it's uh, companies that pay attention to it are on, on the right track. But that leads to this uh, commoditization. But let's talk That's about right. cowboys and crickets. Yeah, it could be. Now, crickets is another one. And if you have a sense that growth is just hard, and that could be growth in net new business or customers, it could be that um, your existing customers are only buying a small percentage of the things that they could from you. They're not buying fully from your portfolio. And if it, it seems hard, I think it could be that you're you haven't enlisted enough messengers. Oftentimes I see it in sales teams. You have uh, folks who are running around trying to set up opportunities and they rely on the sales manager or the boss to close. But think across all those other kinds of settings, as we mentioned earlier, Douglas, your current customers, the, the, the back office, the so-called back office people, because as Daniel Pink would also say, everybody's in non-sales selling uh, to some degree. Mm -hmm. So think about all those people who could be helping you find good fits and good opportunities. Back in my uh, time growing up in that little hometown in Georgia, those summer evenings, the crickets would be chirping outside because there really wasn't else, nothing else was going on. So if the crickets are chirping, it's probably a sign that you could use more messengers. It's probably come down to one or a small handful of people to try to carry that message. Right. The, the, the final one I call cowboys. And here in the States, we think of the cowboys as being the autonomous, independent sort of, of actor. And, and that's great in many ways, but- We're looking at you, salespeople. There you <laughs> go. And people want to do things their own way. And that means that probably across your messengers and across the different points of delivering your message, that things can get very inconsistent in a hurry. 
I talk about some examples in the, in the book, and these may ring true as well. Uh, again, just even through a sales team that you think it's pretty well controlled and marketing and the marketing communications people put together the deck, the demo, oh. the corporate presentation of our capabilities and our wonderful history. Mm. And here's our product line. And as fast as they can, you've got people out in the field are saying, I don't want that slide. I don't want that one. I want to say this my own way. Right. And they have good reasons for doing so. But what happens is that something that you believe is coherent and consistent will rapidly disintegrate as everyone tells the story their own way. And that drives uh, executives and drives organizational leaders crazy because you can't scale inconsistency. And because if the the marketplace of, of customers and clients, if you're hearing different things from different people, they come to trust nothing. And yeah, so, and, and actually this goes back to the management because uh, the people that want to customize whatever it is they're saying, they're, they're doing it because they want to succeed and they think it's going to help and, and, and whatever, but they may not have been uh, properly educated or trained in why the message was developed and, and the benefit to them of, of, of following it. Yes. And oftentimes what can happen, the development of the message doesn't involve the very people that we hope to use it. So one of the things that can come under management is if you want your sales team, if you want your delivery team, if you want your channel partners, even your current customers and others to be good messengers and for you to establish the right language, involve them actively in the creation of that messaging. You mentioned uh, that I have organized this book into message messengers and management, as well as some stories and, and examples in there. That was done on purpose because I want people to come out of this to be able to put together their own version of a playbook, their own version of a plan, if they want to tackle this themselves, uh, that they'd have a, an easy way to do it. And so one of the, the great ways to start, I would say, is if you're looking for the best opportunity, what to do next is in your organization, in your business, are you dealing more with the sense of a kind of a commodity? We sound like everybody else. Is it that the crickets are chirping, that the growth opportunities are a little bit hard right now? Or is it first and foremost about inconsistency? The cowboys are doing things their own way. If you ask 10 people in the hallway, what's our value proposition? What's the biggest benefit of doing business with us? What might happen is you'll get four people who look at you like you're crazy, and then six other people will give you five or six different kinds of answers. Yeah, so, and I would say that some of those folks would say, you marketing people, what's this value proposition? What are these words you guys are always using? So <laughs> Just a, a, a advice for the listener. Be careful about all those marketing words you use. So, Jim, let me ask you another question. Explain what you mean when you say that if we're considering what customers both want and need from us, then we must include a bit of the dark side. Dr. Carr, is that some veiled reference to Star Wars? <laughs> well, I'm not that big of a Star Wars fan. I like it a little bit, but uh, no, I was not, and I won't try to make my Darth Vader voice here into uh, into the microphone. Um, the, the dark side is, um, and this is, it's important for us to understand oftentimes if our message doesn't seem to be landing, um, if we're not, um, if we're not hitting the mark, it might be that we're glossing over the work that a buyer has to do in order to buy our stuff and to get through that decision. Um, I see that a lot of times, uh, certainly in my work with professional sales teams and with other other businesses as well. Um, I, I spoke, and again, this is some bonus material uh, apart from the book, but I was uh, speaking on, on my podcast with 
um, professor named uh, Tom Steenberg at the University of Virginia and spent a, had a long corporate career with Xerox. And he had written uh, an article about how to sell new products. He did a careful examination of those few companies who do a very good job of selling their new stuff versus the rest of companies who tend to struggle with it and, and have frustration there. And one of the main points that came out of all this is we tend to underestimate the work that our buyer has to do, especially if it's something that represents any sort of change on their part. So mm. they have to do a lot of work in terms of making the decision, in terms of setting priorities, and whether you're hiring a new agency or putting in a new piece of technology or whatever that case might be, um, you're, you're having to say no to something and you're opening yourself up for personal and financial risk and, and reputational risk. Career risk, so, yeah. Career risk. And so um, being a, a good conversationalist doesn't mean giving that elevator pitch, doesn't mean being overly clever or overlooking what is required uh, and what's needed in an empathetic way from your buyer. One of the the elements uh, that I hear time and time again, especially in professional services, is people want to be trusted advisors. They want to be trusted or seen as trustworthy. And a very simple shorthand that I've, I've found over the years, Douglas, is that your trustworthiness is pretty much equal parts your expertise and your empathy not sympathy, but your empathy. Mm -hmm. So the expertise is the stuff that you know, and that's usually fairly easy to demonstrate. The clients that you've worked with, your credentials, your years of experience, et cetera. The empathy part is dicier, but it is tremendously important. This is where a lot of people tend to stumble. They don't really put themselves in the position of their buyer or their potential buyer or potential member or donor, whatever the case might be. And so it is conversation. Leading these everyday business conversations is the unique opportunity for you to ask questions, build your empathy, and be able to demonstrate it. That is the key, and that's what can make this such a growth builder for your type of business. But dark side. Explain what you mean there. Is it we need to tell them, uh, make them aware of the risks or not be 100% positive and say, hey, we're not a fit for everybody? What do you mean by dark side? I think it's all of those things, Douglas, is because you're, you're not right for everybody. Uh, you, Douglas, you work with, with manufacturing clients, right? Mm -hmm. um, you might not be so good for someone that, I don't know, is an architect. Maybe you do, but, but you certainly have a sense of fit in terms of your ideal customer, your ideal client, and, uh, and the ways that's best to work with you. And you also would recognize, um, here are the things, and when things go wrong, or if they do go wrong, or if they're um, unequal expectations of, of how that part will go. So it's just good to put ourselves uh, in the shoes of our buyer or our prospect and think that through and be very clear about um, we're not for everybody and structure your conversation that way to help. If you go into this with the heart that I want to help prospects make a good decision for them, then I think you'll be uh, on very solid ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, as you mentioned toward the beginning, you don't have to be 100% correct in doing this. However, that's measured. <laughs> if you just do a little bit of this, it can have a, a really noticeable impact with your customers. Now, I have to quote from the book one more time. There's a lot of talk these days about storytelling. You might legitimately ask whether this is simply the latest business fad 
Such things do happen. Or if something more fundamental is going on, why not just educate buyers about what is possible if they do business with us? The answer is that recent research shows at the neurochemical level how stories affect activity in our brains. Please touch on how stories uh, can be used and how they might actually be better than that root canal of a PowerPoint deck that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> well, it gets to a couple of things. And one, I, I want to uh, note, you, you've had a number of, of experts here and authors on the podcast that have talked about connecting brain science into yes, marketing my favorite and sales subjects. Activities. Yeah, absolutely. And in many cases, it's serving to confirm and codify some things that seemed at our guts to be true. And I think this is uh, this is one of those areas. Um, I'll make a couple of points about uh, the neuroscience. And by the way, my PhD is not in the physical sciences. I'm a social scientist. But um, as I've followed a lot of this along, we talked earlier, Douglas, that comfort tends to drive our propensity to talk about ourselves a little too much. One of the uh, brain science studies uh, that I reference in the book is that uh, there are these, these chemicals that get released, parts of our brain that get activated when we talk about ourselves, and it gives us pleasure. And it's activating the same parts of our brains that give us pleasure from sex, from great food, some, uh, some uh, reaction to, to drugs. And so we talk about ourselves because it feels good in the moment. So we have to recognize that and use that as a way to get past it. And if we could just mention rock and roll, then we'll be able to title this one Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, this episode. Um, I think further research is warranted. <laughs> Check the box. <laughs> the, the other part, quickly, on the, on the brain science uh, end of things, we were talking just now about um, expertise versus empathy. And expertise is you know, that notion that we've got to educate the market, right? Show how smart it, we are. We just give them 12 more, you know, reasons to buy from us that that will get it done. Probably not, but telling a story, uh, inviting people into a story that seems to have some relevance for them. So it's, it's not the story about you per se. It might be a story about a customer or a client yes. that faced a uh, same sort of situation where people can project themselves into it. And, um, and, and feel a sense of ownership in your story, that shows your understanding and it all, uh, and shows uh, that you have a level of empathy. It's also the thing that people will remember. Yes. It makes for a better message as well. So I don't think storytelling is a fad unless you think of it as, let's find a better way to tell the world about us. But if you can find a way across teams, and this is something I also have in here as a management habit, to collect stories they probably exist out there. They might be hidden among different people, different work teams, different geographies. But if you can get together, get your own playbook, get your own plan around messaging together and, and have people share their stories. And I have a few, several examples that are in there, and I've certainly used them in my practice. People find reasons, find new reasons why they like where they work. and They have more confidence in what they do, and it certainly becomes a better way for us to talk about ourselves to the market. Absolutely. And just for folks that are not as familiar with this whole concept of storytelling, full disclosure, I never really understood what people were talking about. And I finally read a sales book called Sell with a Story by Paul Smith. Great book. 
And that's where I first understood that this is not about making things up. It's about presenting information in a certain order that the, the customer's brain is most receptive to. And it's, it's very powerful. But all you marketers out there, I would urge you to be very careful that as you're listening to this, maybe as you're driving to work, do not come in and talk to the civilians. And I mean your management, your sales counterpart, don't say, hey, we're going to start doing storytelling. Or there's a great risk that they're going to think that you are not only a arts and crafts party planner, which you're not, but that's a perception, but that you're also a summer camp counselor. There's certain words that are not helping a lot of marketers when they use them with civilians. And, and that is one of them. But the concept of storytelling, particularly companies that want to talk about their products, if they could just talk about their products in the context of how their customers were struggling and they found it and they, you know, they, they went on that little uh, story. Very, very, very powerful. Now, the last thing I want to ask you, Dr. Carr, is uh, going to be particularly uh, relevant maybe to younger people, but also to people that work in high tech. And I hear it all the time and occasionally I slip into it. And it's two things. And let me just read one more time from the, from the book. Many salespeople, product leaders, and subject matter experts, particularly those in technology companies, are now in the habit of starting sentences with, so, buyers are starting to notice and typically find it annoying. I have even caught myself doing it a few times lately. I might need the equivalent of a swear jar to head that one off. And then you go on to say, if so is potentially a bit annoying, another persistent speech habit can be truly damaging. Up speaking, the pattern of ending a sentence with a rising pitch so that a declaration sounds like a question. This is on the rise. So, Jim, should we not do that? So, Douglas, as I have looked at the research about this, no, okay, we won't, we won't belabor the point. I made a it's, point to ask that at the end of the interview yes. because if I asked at the beginning, <laughs> I was going to start doing it. Do you know what I mean? It, it, I, so what I was saying is that um, I refer to research. And I don't want to sound like some approaching middle-aged crotchety guy who's saying, mm -hmm. well, I, you know, the kids today don't speak in a certain way. Well, but those kids do stay off your lawn. <laughs> and turn down that music. It has happened, and it is particularly pervasive among uh, younger workers and female younger workers. Mm -hmm. But it, um, it has spread. And I say that not just uh, – and I've had people say, well, it's, um, it's just an inclusive, friendly speech pattern. And I, think, I don't think it's poorly intentioned, but it's no. just kind of spread. People are doing it and they don't think about the consequences of it. The, the thing is, whether you're trying to do external messaging or say you're a, a younger manager or someone who really has some very good ideas and you want to be seen as credible, you want your ideas to get a fair hearing, high, what we call high-rising terminal or up-speaking unfortunately gets in the way. And we see a lot of survey data from hiring managers and uh, corporate managers that say it makes you sound as if you're unsure of yourself. Mm. You're not sure about your ideas and the value that you have to offer. So again, like a lot of the, the elements here in the book, Douglas, we're not looking for perfection. Good thing, because none of us will hit that bar. But if you find yourself doing it, and I would almost... Say, if you have that issue, find a buddy. 
you can help each other along and try to <laughs> cleanse that as much as you can from your everyday conversation. Yes, well, you have wormed your way into the office here because now when somebody says so, everyone laughs. So <laughs> there you go. So Jim, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? As we talked about earlier, Douglas, is that there are a lot of issues in companies' everyday business conversations that are absolutely sapping growth opportunities. But this is a manageable business problem. It might might seem squishy. Uh, it might seem a little hard to define. You might think that maybe you and your colleagues don't have the right personality type or maybe the right communication skill to make a change. But my experience is that you can manage that everyday message just as readily as you could other parts of the business. And you don't have to necessarily change your products or pricing or distribution or people or turn your business model on its head. Well said. Jim, the next question I want to ask is a new one from listener Judy Dang in San Francisco. What is one thing the listener can do today to put in action an idea from your book? Oh, congratulations, Judy, for breaking through here with the new question. I would say if there's one thing that you can do is to identify one crucial conversation for the business. And it can be different. For some people, it is with the sales team. For some people, you may be losing customers or clients. And so there's something in account management that's not working. Maybe you're trying to recruit people into membership and you need volunteers to be able to, to bring in that message. Uh, real quickly, I, I had a client who was in the HVAC, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning business. And so um, they were installing and maintaining and servicing uh, big air conditioning units, heating units, et cetera. And they had a larger and larger product portfolio over time, but yet they found that a lot of their customers weren't buying them because they just didn't even know about it. And they just did a little backtracking and figured that 70% of the customer contact was with the technicians, the techs, the people who would show up at the business or the home of their customers and um, was actually doing the work. So they had to reverse engineer. We reverse engineered that conversation and think, make sure that those people in their problem solving mode knew of all the offerings that the company had and, and could feel comfortable enough without being too salesy, without doing something that they weren't comfortable in, uh, to be able to convey more of that to the customers. So find, you, know, you can start with one. You don't have to boil the ocean here, as we say. Find one crucial conversation that makes a lot of difference to your growth and just back up the thing. Do we have the right message that's connecting? Do, have we prepped and fed our messengers so that they feel knowledgeable and comfortable and confident? And then are we, through our management habits, reinforcing that as people come into and out of the organization? Good. Well, Judy, thank you for that question. Uh, that's a great idea. If any other listeners have ideas for uh, questions or ways that we can improve the podcast other than swapping out the host, please let me know. <laughs> so, Jim, what books have inspired your work and career? Well, there have been a lot of them. Um, Robert Cialdini, Influence, he's written a number of things, but I've, I've found value in his writings and I've not even met him face to face. And he's a but PhD the, like yourself. He's a better PhD than I am <laughs> and <laughs> more highly published than am I. But I, I did. I first read his papers and, and examples back when I was uh, studying for my PhD. And I was very impressed 
the, everything he did was conceptually sound, but it was also very practical. So yes. he was that rare professor who would go out. He went undercover as a used car salesman, as a fundraiser, doing those sorts of things. He was studying the tactics and the methods that professional persuaders were using. And he was going back to the concepts and saying, what's going on here and how can we explain it? I actually came face to face with uh, Dr. Cialdini's ideas a few years ago too. Uh, I was on a consulting project uh, through a group uh, called DSG Consulting, and I was helping create a messaging playbook for a company called O-Power. This was a a company whose IP, their intellectual property, was built on Dr. Cialdini's work. The founders had gone to him and, and said, are there ways that we can use your ideas, put it into software that will help utility customers save energy using the power of social proof? And they, they put this company together. Dr. Cialdini wound up being on their board and uh, was an investor in the company. I can just tell you, O-Power had a successful IPO, and then it was acquired by Oracle. Um, so yes, the principles are very real world valuable. So that's a, it's a great one to go to. There are a few more recent books. Um, a, a number of them are people that you've had here on the podcast. Uh, I have to say Dory Clark's latest book, Entrepreneurial You, uh, mm. is, is excellent. I've read uh, lately David Avern's book, uh, Why Customers Leave, Anthony Inarino's Eat Their Lunch, um, I like Alex Goldfain's work. His latest one is Selling Boldly. Selling Boldly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Frank Sesno, the former CNN uh, White House correspondent, had a book called Ask More. Yeah, I got to interview him too. And I was so nervous because it was a he wrote a book about asking questions, and so I was very self-conscious about questions I was asking the great Frank Sesno, the, the longtime CNN correspondent. I liked Mark Schaefer's latest book, The Marketing Rebellion, yes. and uh, uh, my friend uh, David Knorr is, uh, has a book which is still in the concept phase called Curve Benders that I'm sure is going to be really good. I'm looking forward to that one, oh, too. Oh, wow. I'll make a note of that one. Super. So, Jim, we'll include links to your site, which is jimcar.com, and I'll spell that for folks, uh, J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H. Com. And we'll include links to your uh, LinkedIn profile and your social media and links to all the books that uh, you've mentioned in this episode's uh, show notes at Marketing Book Podcast so that listeners can reach out to you and connect with you. And I hope they'll thank you for, for being a guest. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. The author is Dr. Jim Carr. Jim, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. This has been a, a real treat and an honor. I feel like I have completed the AP class you know, of, of uh, business books and reported out to the class <laughs> and the expert teacher. <laughs> thank you. And that closes the book on episode 242 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Hrefs, to start getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website. Start your seven-day trial for just $7 by visiting hrefs.com. And that's spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Nicholas Webb back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Innovation Mandate, 
the growth secrets of the best organizations in the world. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. And one of your favorite bands is the Cars, I guess. Yeah, shake it up. (laughs) 